London had burned. It wasn't the first time this would happen, nor would it be the last time this would happen. Nor would it be the last time this decade it would happen. But London had burned. It had suffered a terrible inferno. Homes had been destroyed. People had probably been killed. Still, the one advantage of building simple wooden homes with thatch roofs was, well, they were comparatively easy to rebuild, even if they were somewhat flammable. And so it was done. In the aftermath of the Great Fire of 1077, London rebuilt itself anew. But the Normans saw an opportunity in the process of rebuilding that would cement their occupation and give them a more secure footing in London. And in the process, ordered the construction of arguably one of London's most iconic landmarks, the Tower of London. So, let's look into that, the circumstances of the building of the tower, and also its two sisters, because I do believe three great stone towers dominated the skyline of London as the 1080s emerged, and an era was about to come to an end. Hi, my name is Saul, and I'd like to welcome you to the Story of London, the podcast dedicated to telling the history of the city as a single linear tale. You can listen along section after section as I go along, or you can jump right in as each episode I try to make self-contained. And here is the part about how London rebuilt itself after the devastating fire of 1077. Welcome then to Chapter 51, The Three Towers. understand the conditions the city were living in in 1078 or so. This was a town living under draconian laws. The regime of William of Normandy was getting into its stride. Not that London really saw William that much. He was now, with all the revolts and protests mostly done, an absentee king. Normandy was occupying much more of his attention, and England was now... Well, being controlled by his underlings. His relative, Bishop Odo of Bayeux, was nominally in charge of the nation. But more than this, the city itself was under the jurisdiction of Geoffrey de Mandeville, now a rich and successful landowner, and basically the power of the administration over the city of London. The city lived under a curfew, the first curfew recorded in English history. From the ringing of the evening bell until the next morning, no one was allowed to keep a single flame lit within the city walls, lest the disaster of the last great fire happen again. Now, when it comes to the damage done by that fire, alas, we don't actually know much specific. But what we can reconstruct is fascinating and I find very interesting. For one thing, we're fairly sure that the wooden stockade over in the western side of the city had been destroyed, because the Normans started rebuilding it, but not as it was. If you remember a few chapters ago, I said that Normans liked to build Mott and Bailey castles in England when they arrived somewhere, but when they occupied London, well, our distinct lack of motts in the city's um, archaeological records suggests that anything they built was just the Bailey section, a large wooden stockade. After the fire, this region is believed to have started to earn the nickname of 
Old Bailey to remember where this thing was originally. In place of this, something new was constructed. On the far western corner of the city, where the river fleet met the Roman walls, a stone tower was erected. Records indicate it was constructed by the then Sheriff of Essex, a man called Ralph Baynard, on the inside of the western city wall, where in time Blackfriars Friary would be located. Baynard had many estates in Norfolk and Essex at this time, and he was a beneficiary of William's generous land grab and give to his supporters tactics he'd been inflicting on the country. Baynard's main manor seemed to have been a village called Little Dunmore, and we have records saying that he and his manor paid for and sent people to serve as, quote, castle guard, unquote, for this tower here in London. If we take the aftermath of the fire of 1077 as the date construction on this tower started to replace the Old Bailey, then we're fairly sure it was completed around 1080, so about three years later. There was also a soak attached to it, which people may remember is the name we gave to the different regions of London before they became wards. And this soak was coterminous with the parish of the Church of St. Andrew, that old wooden church described in the Charter of Westminster Abbey, which I mentioned all the way back in chapter 21. But Baynard's wasn't the only tower we think was being built in the western part of the city as London recovered from the fire. You see, we also know that sometime in the late 11th century, so in this era, a second stone tower was built just over 200 yards to the north of Baynard's. And we've unfortunately only got scattered details about this. For example, the first written evidence that it existed only appears 50 or 60 years from now. Now in that evidence, the tower is being referred to being the property of another Essex-based bunch of landlords. In this case, somebody called the Montfiture family. And there are records of a William Montfiture living in London, and his name is attached to the charter given to the city by the future Henry I. Aside from this, however, there are only scant traces and records. We know with 100% certainty that this tower existed and dominated the skyline near Baynard's Castle by the 1130s. And as such, it is a guesstimate by me to claim that it was built in the aftermath of 1077. There is, for reasons that will become clear, an argument to be made that construction only started after 1087. However, for the sake of the narrative I'm telling, I'm just going to alert you, the listener, to this absolute uncertainty, and then boldly state that I believe that as London arose in the years after the fire of 1077, two stone towers were constructed, or in the process of being constructed, to dominate that side of the skyline of the city, alongside their close neighbour, St. Paul's Cathedral, which at the time had a big wall around it. Yeah. But these were not the only stone towers being constructed. Over on the other side of London, the eastern fortress of London was rebuilt also. And this was to become the White Tower of London. Now, the man who oversaw the building of the tower is a fascinating dude whose story gives us a really interesting insight into the fortunes of those 
who came over to England from Normandy after the invasion. This is the tale of a man called Gundalf. Now, he was born in Normandy and he took monastic orders and became a Benedictine monk in the Abbey of Beck. This was a monastery that had only been established around 1034 or so, but it had quickly grown and it now housed apparently 136 monks. When Gundalf was there, the newly appointed prior of the Abbey of Beck and master of teaching in the monastery was a charismatic and brilliant theologian originally from Lombardy, called Lanfranc of Pavia. Soon afterwards, Lanfranc was appointed the abbot of the politically significant Abbey of St. Etienne in Cannes. Being made abbot of the Abbey of St. Etienne was really significant for Lanfranc because it pointed out that William recognised his brilliance. Gundalf himself appears to have originally been a pupil of Lanfranc and then later a friend of Abbot Lanfranc and he rose in status to become Abbot Lanfranc's chamberlain. Now back in 1070, King William, now somewhat more secure on his throne, had invited this Abbot Lanfranc to come to England and reorganise the monastic communities of England. Lanfranc was by now a very famed Italian jurist working for William and he was already kind of William's principal ecclesiastical ace in the hole. You see, it's believed by some that the reason Pope Alexander II had given William his papal blessing to invade England in the first place had been because Pope Alexander II had also been a former pupil of Lanfranc. That's how important this abbot was to William. So it should come as no surprise that back in 1070, when Abbot Lanfranc turned up, he was quickly made the holder of the title of Archbishop of Canterbury when that seat became vacant. And travelling over in 1070 to support Lanfranc had been those monks he'd built up a rapport with back over in Normandy, which included Gundalf of Beck. Gundalf also saw quick promotion and was granted the title of Bishop of Rochester in 1075 at Lanfranc's instigation. He was consecrated as Bishop in March 1077. Gundalf, however, in the process of restoring Rochester's cathedral, impressed everyone by his grasp of the principles of architecture and his skill at turning plans into working and completed projects. It was probably for this reason that King William tapped Gundalf to help build him the new construction over on the west side of London. Gundalf oversaw this project and a couple of years later he was overseeing the building of a castle down in Colchester as well. But what was to emerge there besides London was entirely Gundalf's creation. And it wasn't an utterly original idea. Over 70 years previously in a the far western part of Normandy, at a little place called Urville-la-Batille, a local lord had built this huge, magnificent donjon of a similar design, and many have said this influenced Gundalf. Now, we actually do not know the precise date for the start of the construction of the Tower of London, but tradition tells us it was in the year 1078, in the aftermath of the Great Fire of 1077. A study of tree rings found in the wood used in that initial construction 
tells us that construction probably started between 1075 and 1079. So the 1078 date is right in the pocket. Later archaeology, however, tells us that there was a pause in the building that took place round about 1080. Why? Well, we don't know. Now, it could be since 1080 was supposedly when Baynard's castle was finished, that security priorities demanded that the stone intended for one was directed towards the other to complete it that year. But this is pure speculation on my part. But while the Normans were forever building castles everywhere, the tower was different. This one was special. This was the largest tower ever constructed by William. It was to be his bastion and bolt hole within London. It was always meant to be somewhere special. The tower was a symbol of the new king's power over London, and it rose majestically to dominate the entire view of that side of the city. It was this huge thing, not including the corner towers. It was 118 feet by 105 feet wide at the base and stood about 90 feet high. The original building was three stories high with a basement floor, an entrance floor and an upper level. And before you start asking, wait, if it's three stories high, but there's a basement. At Understand the entrance was built via the way all entrances were built at Norman Keeps. In other words, the door was not at ground level. Rather, the door in was built one floor up. In the case of the White Tower, accessed via an elaborate wooden staircase to a door on the south-facing side. The great thing about using that method, if anyone did attack the tower, you just smashed up or even unscrewed and pushed away the staircase. And the weakest point of the tower, the doorway in, is now above the attacker's heads. Smart. The original plans dictated that each floor was to be divided into three separate chambers. The largest one in the west, a smaller room in the northeast, and a chapel taking up the entrance and upper floors part of the southeast. At the western corners of this building were constructed two huge low-bearing square towers, while on the northeast a round tower was made to host a spiral staircase, and at the southeast corner there's a large semicircular projection that was actually made to fit in the asp of the tower chapel. See, this was not just intended to be a fortress. It was intended to be a residence for the king and his guests, as well as being a stronghold. Latrines were built into the walls, and four large fireplaces were also added to provide warmth in the winter. The building of the foundations had led to a lot of land being excavated, and this was used to construct a mound which the, meant the northern side of the lowest level was built into, making it partly below ground. This lowest level was the undercroft, mostly used for storage and supplies, but it also contained a room given over to the all-important well. The tower was self-sufficient in water. The floor above it, where the entrance broke into, was to be used by the person in charge of the tower itself, a post that was called the Constable of the Tower. And who was the first Constable of the Tower of London? Well, no surprise, it was Geoffrey de Mandeville, obviously. And this was to be his headquarters, really, in his various roles overseeing the city. This floor contained the crypt of the chapel from the floor above, 
which was located in the southeast corner of the tower and was apparently only accessible from one chamber. Within it was a recessed section which many have said was used as a strong room to store royal treasures and crucial legal documents. Above this floor then was the main upper section, the floor which contained the tower's grand hall in the west and a residential chamber in the east, and to the southeast was St. John's Chapel, which remains to this day. Surprisingly enough, the main building material was ragstone quarried down from Maidstone in Kent. This was the material used by Edward the Confessor to build Westminster Abbey down on Thorny Island with. So it seems to be in the primary stone used to build any large stone structures in the city. However, to give the tower its distinctive white appearance, creamy white limestone was quarried over in Cairn in Normandy and imported especially. And it gave the whole thing a distinctive and contrasting appearance. Understand, the primary stone used in any building in London was local mudstone, which was cheap and was also dark. By constructing this gigantic tower like this so it looked white or an off-white, well, this was simply marvellous propaganda and psychological warfare. The power of the king stood to the west of the city, a huge structure that looked alien to all the other buildings around it. I've often tried to describe to people that the original White Tower looked like it was some kind of alien mothership come to dominate the city, reminding all the locals that those in charge ain't from round here. The tower we think was completed over a period of about 20 years, but we're not too sure. And one of the issues apparently were the limitations of the lime mortar the builders used to construct it. I've read that because of limitations in the way the mortar was put together, castles could only be constructed at about 12 foot per year. And I've got to admit, I don't know if there's any validity to that. I just read it in a book and it stuck in my mind. So I've no reason to refute it, but ultimately no one is just exactly how long it took to build. In fact, the only thing I can be sure of is that we're going to be coming back to this location a lot in the coming years. Today, the Tower of London stands as a memorial to times past, one of the most engaging and fascinating places to visit in London. And along with Westminster Abbey and St. Paul's, it was one of the earliest iconic buildings of the city. But over the years to come in our podcast, we'll be returning here again and again. It will be the centre of much of the story of London. So here we are, the aftermath of the Great Fire of 1077, and three stone towers dominate the skyline of London. Were they the only rebuilding that took place in London in the aftermath of those flames? No, the destruction of so much of the city allowed other new structures be built. Over on West Sipi, the street that would at a future date be called Cheapside, a new church was built on the street. Well, actually, again, we're not 100% sure when this church was built. Sometime between 1070 and 1090, which is a pretty big window of possibility. Now, and while I mention it now, in the aftermath of the fire of 1077, it could be started a few years later from now. The church itself was called St. Mary de Arquibus, a name it picked up because it had an elaborate series of stone archways in its crypt. 
this massive crypt was to play an important role within ecclesiastical politics at the time, as it was here that the Archbishop of Canterbury, Lanfranc, was to hold his appeals court, an institution known as the Court of Archers. We also know that a priory, that at a future date would become a full-fledged abbey, was constructed in 1082 down on Bermondsey Marsh, just south of London Bridge and Southwark. I mean, today you'd find it somewhere between Grange Walk and Long Walk. This priory was dedicated to Saint Saviour and was founded by a man called Aylwin Child, who some records suggest was a Saxon merchant granted this land by King William. Around 1084, we know there are records of the now lost parish church of St. Nicholas Acons, constructed down on what's now called Nicholas Lane, just off the present-day Lombard Street. This church was unusual, as it was dedicated to a rather interesting saint, the Archbishop Nicholas of Myra. Now, Archbishop Nicholas of Myra at the time was a wildly popular saint, because he had a reputation of intercession if you prayed to him. So great was his reputation for intercession that in time this long-dead Turkish saint became the patron saint of sailors and of merchants and of archers and of repentant thieves, <laughs> as well as being the patron saint of children, brewers, pawnbrokers, unmarried people uh, and students. <laughs> he was a veritable Swiss army knife of paper intercession. And these days, well, we all know this Saint Nicholas of Myra as that kindly old Saint Nick, whose proclivity of giving gifts in secret was what led him to become identified as Santa Claus. But back then, what with the church being located as it was, kind of halfway between East Sheep or East Sheep and West Sheep, I, I think he, it was dedicated to him as the patron saint of merchanting. Now, the origin of the Acons part of its name, I've read, was either supposedly a corruption of a surname of a later benefactor of the church, but also that it could be a crude insult based on the terms Acons being a derivative of the French word kun, and that would make the church name St. Nicholas's Fanny, which I ain't too sure about. All we do know is about 1084, a man called Godwinus and his wife, Trurund, gave patronage of this church to an abbey in Wiltshire. The church of St. Nicholas was to remain here from now until the Great Fire of 1666, when it would be burned down and never repaired. 1085 was the year London faced a rather ferocious and severe winter, but also saw the building of the first version of the Church of St. Alfigi over in Greenwich, near the site the Yom's Vikings had murdered him around 83 years earlier, as I described back in chapter 28. And we also saw our new constable of the tower, Geoffrey de Mandeville, and his second wife, Lesilina, found a priory as a cell of the Abbey of St. Peter's over on Thorny Island. The priory was founded in the town of Hurley, located over in Berkshire, just south of the River Thames. It's worth remembering, as I said last chapter, a lot of this church building was not so much devotional acts by pious and clean-living Norman Christians. Building a church was a great act of penance by Christians 
who had just been caught doing something especially shitty because they could find absolution of their sins by building a church. And there's a lot of church building going on denoting the sheer amount of shittiness found in the general population of Norman landowners at this time. But they were not the only people rebuilding things around now. King William was also, and he was improving things over in Westminster. At the Christmas court back in 1074, William had ordered that Queen Edith, the late widow of Edward the Confessor, should be buried next to her husband in Westminster Abbey with an ornate and grand ceremony. This was an unusual thing. Queens were not usually buried next to their kings in England, but William wanted to use her funeral as propaganda and bury her next to good King Edward and not be buried anywhere near with her bad Godwin family. Meanwhile, around the dead royal couple... The abbey itself was becoming somewhere seen increasingly as special. If we believe the propagandists, Westminster was becoming truly a sacred space. According to one book I've read, the abbey contained many sacred relics, including, supposedly, a beam from the holy manger of Christ, shards of the cross upon which Christ was killed, soil from Mount Calvary, sand from Mount Sinai, the breast milk of the Virgin Mary, the finger of St. Paul, the blood of Christ himself, and a tuft of hair belonging to St. Peter. I can't verify the authenticity or provenance of such relics, but I think we can all agree that somewhere, someone had made a lot of money selling some fakes. <clears throat> but while the king was off and away from London, we have records that extensive building works were being carried out in Westminster under the direction of their abbot Vitalis, who, like Bishop Gundalf, was a Norman monk now elevated to a position of power. Two historians in 2015 suggested that substantial sections of Edward's church and monastic buildings were actually completed around now under Norman direction, and that there was construction and improvement of the royal residence over on Thorny Island. We have an account of a near shipwreck of 15 ships carrying Cairnstone to Westminster, not the Tower of London, from this period. And it's recorded because the ships were saved, supposedly, by the direct intercession of St. Augustine himself, apparently. Which was nice. While any work on the palace in Westminster by William I was to eventually be ploughed underground by the work done by his son, 15 ships is a significant amount, and that's a lot of stone they're carrying. So there was work going on in Westminster. As the years passed, however, and William spent more time dealing with affairs in France, the most significant issue he seemed to face was the declining relationship between him and his eldest son, Robert, whom it appears he nicknamed Kurt Hose, or Little Trousers. <laughs> and if you don't pick up on the passive-aggressive insult in there, allow me to say that nickname was a passive-aggressive insult. The heir to William's estates was utterly different from his father. William was fierce, puritanical and decisive. Robert was somewhat dissolute and calculating. They did not get on. William, as we enter the 1080s, now enters his 50s growing rather corpulent with age, although there are no traces of him becoming infirm or sickly in these later days. He remained as robust as ever. Things began to stabilise a little. 
The new Pope asked William to follow through to his promise, the one he'd made to Pope Alexander to get the blessing, that he would swear allegiance to the Pope. William refused. Amicably, it must be said, and the new Pope seemed disappointed by this, but sanguine in this William's breaking his word to the papacy, really. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle tells us that while King William spent Christmas of the year 1085 in Gloucester, the king, quote, had deep speech with his councillors and sent men all over England to each shire to find out what or how much each landowner had in land and livestock and what it was worth. There was no one single hide, nor yard of land, name moreover, not even an ox, nor a cow, nor a swine, that there was left, that was not set down in his writ. And all the recorded particulars were afterwards brought to him." Unquote. What was the chronicle talking about? Well, they're referring to one of the most formidable achievements of medieval record-taking ever made, the so-called Doomsday Survey of England. Now, English school kids are told when they're young that it was an inventory of the entire nation. But please note, several places were left out. Winchester wasn't included, Durham wasn't included, and as I've mentioned before, London wasn't included. The result of this massive survey was completed by 1086, and it contains the records of 13,418 settlements in the English county south of the rivers Ribble and Tees, the designated border with Scotland at the time. William had collected this information by sending out royal commissioners, who had divided the country into seven regions, or circuits, with three or four commissioners assigned to each circuit. Supposedly, each commissioner carried upon them a series of set questions, and they put these to a jury of local representatives from the areas they travelled to. Now, these commissioners then wrote down quite diligently all the answers to their questions, and once their circuits were completed, they supposedly returned to London. Here, the information was combined with earlier records from the reign of Edward the Confessor, and then entered in Latin into a final doomsday book. Or I should say books, as there were two of them. The first volume, known to us as Great Doomsday, contains the final summarised record of all the counties of England surveyed, except Essex, Norfolk and Suffolk. The information from these three counties was never edited or summarised, and the full an abbreviated record of them was sent to Winchester by their commissioners. This second volume, or Little Doomsday, was never summarised and was simply added to the larger volume. And as well as valuing assets, this fascinating document gives us a valuable insight into land use at the time, the life of local landowners, and even disputes between neighbours. The irony was that this mighty work was almost certainly never seen by William, who returned to Normandy in 1086 and did not set foot in England ever again. Of greater irony, however, is that while I, and all of us who write about London, make much of the fact that London did not appear upon the pages of the Doomsday Survey, which is a great pity, as it would have provided a lot of really powerful insight into the disposition of the souks of London and who owned what, most of what we call London today 
was included. Remember, London then was all contained within the city's walls, today's City of London. The vast metropolis, today's Greater London, was documented in some detail. Out of the seven circuits taken by the commissioners, one of these included the counties of Bedfordshire, Buckinghamshire, Cambridgeshire, Herefordshire and Middlesex. And as these commissioners went, each county was divided into hundreds, which regular listeners may remember was a unit of taxation used in the old Saxon state. And it was each hundred that the commissioners would gather 12 jurors from to ask their questions, supposedly half of them English-born and the other half Norman migrants. Greater London as it exists today, north of the Thames, was the territory that fell within the county of Middlesex, more specifically under the jurisdiction of the Middlesex Hundred of Osselstone, where the largest settlement was by far the town of Stepney, while most of what we today call South London came under the Hundred of the town of Brixton. The Bishop of London was actually the owner of Stepney, with his 32 hides of tax revenue and woodland containing 400 pigs. In the same village of Stepney, another landowner called Hugh of Berniers owned land from the bishop and under him were other men who owned land from him but but these smaller land holdings were below subsistence level and so these residents of Stepney would have to work on Hugh's land or on the bishop's land or be used as labourers as building projects in the city in order to support their families which perhaps goes some way to explain how part of London's workforce operated. Other settlements mentioned in the Osselton Hundred include Hoxton, which was owned by the Canons of St. Paul's and had ten villages, Hampstead, um, which was held by the Abbot of St. Peter's Abbey, which had one villager, five small holdings, one slave, and woodland for a hundred pigs, and Haggerston, which was held by someone called Robert Gurnan, with three villages and seven smallholders. We see many names upon Doomsday we associate with London today. Geoffrey de Mandeville owns a plethora of local settlements, including somewhere called Ebury, also within the hundred of Osselton, with a recorded 24 households in the year 1086. Ebury doesn't exist anymore, and to find it you got to dig kind of below the surface of today's Pimlico. Far larger was de Mandeville's land up in Edmonton, which was a significant settlement. It had its own 100 and thriving with 87 households. Meanwhile, just outside the city walls was tiny Bishopgate, with just 10 households, while below the river, Southwark, now 20 years on from the devastation caused by the Normans in 1066, is being recorded as part of the 100 of Brixton and was owned by Bishop Odo of Bayer. Westminster was also included in the Doomsday Book, with a recorded population of 62 households and 100 pigs, and was of course owned by the Abbot of St. Peter's Abbey. The rich Abbey of Barking, where William had stayed after his men had destroyed Westminster, owned Marylebone, a village with 8 households and 50 woodland pigs. Someone called Edward of Salisbury owned Chelsea, a slightly larger village with 12 households and 60 pigs while Kensington had 36 households and over 200 pigs and was owned by Bishop Geoffrey of Constances. And here we pause, because while we gaze at London now rebuilding, we see around it a growing and busy population. 
The Greater London region seemed to be filmed with life and vibrancy, yet while the city does not appear upon the pages of Great Doomsday or of Little Doomsday, it was about to face its own doomsday. Because as 1085 comes to an end, I believe three terrible events are about to happen to the city. Now many historians will note that in the next year, 1086, the city was about to suffer another fire, this one supposedly worse than the terrible one that had hit it in 1077. A few more specialist historians will also report that before this fire broke out, the first documented case of a severe epidemic erupted in the fetid, narrow streets of London. But only a few really hardcore historians ever really talk about the terrible third disaster that was to strike down London about this time. For me, this event was apocalyptical, but it was also slow-moving. In fact, it was so slow-moving, it is very hard to pick a single year to say this is when it happened. But I've chosen to say it'll happen in 1087, or to identify it coming to a head in 1087. London, to me, was about to endure its own doomsday and begin a dark age upon the city it would take centuries to recover from. But to understand what I'm talking about, I need to explain it way more in detail and to give some evidence. So I'm going to need to take a bit more time. As such, I will leave the story of London here with the three towers being built and with the promise of flame and pestilence and disaster forthcoming. I hope you'll join me in the next chapter, which will be the end of book two of the story of London. Thank you for listening. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. I know I adored writing it as I got to make London the focus of the whole thing. And that delights me. More of this as we go forward, I promise you. I'd also like to thank all those who've supported the podcast so far. And support comes in many differing forms. You could be one of those people who actually enjoyed the formal written version of these scripts I post up on the website Imager. And I am aware I'm a few episodes behind in that and I do intend to catch up. I'd like to thank here and now Imager users Sister Moon, Templi Embarrassed Thousand Air and Elusive Thing for their recent positive comments and feedback. It's much appreciated. You could also be one of the people who leave a lovely five-star review on Apple or Spotify if you feel so inclined. And I'm grateful to a recent review by Apple user Alex Noho. Um, you could also, if you wish, leave a one-off donation at my Buy Me A Coffee webpage. And I'd really like to thank uh, Robot Girl for a kind donation recently there. And finally, you could always become a member of my Buy Me A Coffee page. And these are the folks who are basically keeping the podcast going and towards whom I am grateful beyond words. And in this respect, I have to humbly thank the user Mountain Spider Girl, who I can only dedicate the closing theme music to with a slightly extended version, allowing somebody, you know, maybe indulge in their desire to jig along. And that's it. 
Next episode, we come to the end of season two of the story of London and begin the opening salvos of season three. Exciting times ahead. Thank you once again for listening. See you then. Let's play that jiggy music.